Thanks for joining us for the City Church Podcast. More information on City Church is available at www.ourcitychurch.org. All right, if you have a Bible, go to Psalm 1. Psalm 1, we're going to be hanging out in the very first Psalm today. You ready to read it together? Here we go, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that we get to gather today, right here, right now, in July in 2013, and worship you with songs and with our hearts. God, it's amazing that we get to huddle around the living word of God, that we get to read your word, the word that you spoke through prophets, God. Lord, we want to hear it, Jesus, not as just the song of a man, but God, as the living word of God that's eternal, that's beyond time or history, God, that it stands eternally. Jesus, this morning, I open up my heart. Let's just each do that. God, this morning, I open up my heart. Would you speak to me today from your living word? Could I hear from you today, God? I ask you in faith, speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever realized that you can get numb in certain areas of your conscience or uh, of your emotions, that there's this capability that we human beings have to uh, develop a certain type of numbness. You ever experienced that? I'll give you an example in my own life. So when I was a younger lad, uh, my best friend growing up was a kid by the name of Will. And uh, Will Corso, his grandmother worked at Tommy K Video. Does anybody remember Tommy K Video? couple New Englanders in the house remember Tommy K's. Everybody else is like, who's K? What? You know, um, there used to be these things called video stores, okay? And uh, I, I enjoyed them, as a matter of fact. And, uh, you know, you could go, you could walk around in a, with human beings rather than at your house on your couch clicking things. And, uh, you know, you would pick up these things called VHS cassette tape, video cassette tapes. Anybody remember those? couple of us. Okay, and so, you know, uh, we would get those tapes. And, and so I remember like every Friday, uh, Will's grandma would come uh, back to his house because she lived with them uh, with kind of like a stack of VHS tapes, you know, and she used to get all these like crazy horror movies. And so here I was, I wasn't a follower of Jesus by any means. And I'm watching as a young kid, you know, I don't know, nine, 10, 11, like, you know, the Freddy Krueger movies and the, you know, all the like kill him, squirt him, terrible movies. You know what I'm saying? Some of you guys like those movies. And, you know, um, over time, there developed in me sort of this numbness to those movies. And so I wasn't really impacted by those movies. And so I gave my life to Jesus. I got married. Some things in life shifted. And I haven't watched like a spooky, scary, dark movie in, I don't know, like 15 years. I mean, it's been a long time since I kind of got into that because it's just, it's not my thing. I I don't think it's... uh, you know, something that really gets my soul in a wonderful place. And so, you know, I haven't been watching any of those types of movies. And so the other day, me and some friends are going to the movies. And, um, you know, we want, I want to see Superman because it's like Superman and Jesus are kind of like... Anyways, so 
I haven't seen it, so don't ruin it for me. But, you know, so you've got, I wanted to see Superman, but we, we flipped a, we, we've decided to do it the old, you know, the New Testament cast lots way, and we casted lots, and it ended on Brad Pitt, okay? And so we end up going to this movie, and I was not really familiar with, you know, I'm kind of paranoid as to what movies I actually watch. You know, I'm pretty, pretty tight. And so I checked it for, like, content, and I kind of skimmed it, made sure it had no nudity in it, made sure, you know, some of the basics. And so I checked, I said, okay, it looks like it's all right, fine, I'll just go to this movie. And I didn't really register what the movie was about. And, you know, uh, the movie is uh, World War Z. I don't know if you've seen it. If you haven't, don't waste your time. And, uh, and, and the, basically, the movie is about you know, uh, this disease that begins in the human race and, and everybody starts becoming, you know, man-eating zombies and they want to, like, destroy the whole world and eat everybody else. And, um, and so you've got everybody running around, killing each other and eating each other and moms eating their kids and, you know, all these beautiful images that are just awesome. And I'm watching this movie and I'm like, it's 3D and I'm sitting there with some friends and I'm thinking to myself, no one else is bothered by this? Like, am I the only man of God in the house here? Like, this is ridiculous. And I, and I turned to some of, our, some of my friends. I said, what, what, this is the stupidest movie. And they said, what's a zombie movie? And, you know, I'm a little bit out of touch, so I didn't realize that, like, zombie movies had taken over all of our culture. You know, I just, that wasn't part of my, you know, experience right now. And so, you know, I'm like, okay, so I guess because it's a zombie movie, it gets this pass for, like, flesh-eating chaos, right? And, like, for some reason, we have this capacity to watch it and go, ah, it's a zombie. Oh, he just ate that girl. You know, like, I mean, oh, he just killed that person. Oh, wow, they just destroyed their son. Like, I mean, and it's just... Because it's a zombie movie, it's not that big of a deal. And my point is not to give you a dissertation on the movie, although I thought it stunk, but, but it's more to emphasize this idea that you and I have this ability or this capacity to become numb to certain things, that we have this ability to just adopt ideas without even recognizing their implications. And if we're not careful, we don't realize that there are values floating around, all around us. We talk about this a lot at City Church. Values floating around our culture that are influencing and impacting you in so many different ways. For example, this value of pleasure. So in our culture, we deify this idea of pleasure. So we would say, you know, whoever has the most pleasure in life, that person wins. That's how you judge success. So life is about maximizing pleasure. And so, you know, you have all these people bragging about how many people they slept with or how much money they have or how many places they go. And so pleasure, you know, maximizing pleasure. And so this, this bleeds into how we eat. This bleeds into the clothes we wear. This bleeds into the TV set that we buy, the car that we drive, all influenced by this ideology of pleasure. Well, I have to have that because I have to maximize my pleasure. I have to live a little, right? And so maximizing comfort and pleasure is an ideology that infiltrates everything we think and do in this society today. And so another example of this would be you know, the, uh, the idea of love. And so in our culture, this idea of love is generally emotional at its core. Love must be felt, and love really at its core in our culture most of the time is self-serving. It's all about us. I love him. He makes me feel good. I love her. She makes me feel important. I love this. It makes me feel valued. And so this idea of love kind of, you know, gets distorted. And so you have God's perspective on these things, which for oftentimes some of us is sort of a distant idea. And then we have every second of our life, every time we turn the TV on, every time we drive down the street, every time we interact with a conversation, these values being proclaimed, whether we realize it or not. And for some of us, 
We just become numb to them, and we just adopt them without realizing that we're adopting them. Have you ever read the Old Testament story of Ruth? I, I don't know if you ever have. I encourage you to read. I think it's only four chapters. It's not very long. It's interesting to me that the Old Testament story of Ruth is in the Old Testament. And if you've never read the Old Testament story of Ruth, then uh, maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. The Old Testament story of Ruth, you know, has no major wars. It has no major miracles. Uh, it has no king. You know, like it doesn't have the typical like God encounter. I'm in a fire and God keeps me alive experience of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I've thrown in a lion's den and they don't eat me with lions. I get a visitation from God and have a kid when I'm 100 years old. I mean, it's none of those things. Ruth is just like this very sort of normal story. It's a story about a woman who um, her husband dies and her and her sons go to a foreign land. She has two sons and they move from Israel, God's land, to Moab, a land nearby southeast of Jerusalem. And so they go there and they hang out there and her two sons find wives from this pagan culture, which was kind of a fashion faux pas at the day. You know? So if you are a follower of God, Israelite, you typically don't marry a Moabite woman because these people practiced false religions. They even practiced human sacrifices. They were unclean people. And so uh, this woman, who is now a widow, and her two sons, now the two sons marry Moabites. And so uh, some time goes by, and the two sons die. And now you've got an elderly Jewish woman and two Moabite daughter-in-laws. You all following this? Okay, so, yeah, not very exciting. Where's the miracles? Where's the cool stuff, you know? Like, why is this in the Bible at all? And so what happens is, interestingly enough, the woman decides to go back to her homeland of Israel. She says, Moabite sister-in-laws, just go back to Moab. I'm going back to Israel. See you later. And so one of them says, okay, see you later, goodbye. And they say goodbye. But one of the two daughter-in-laws, excuse me, not sister-in-law, one of the two daughter-in-laws says, "Uh, I don't want to leave. I want to stay with you. And, and so Naomi, who's the older lady, and Ruth, who's the Moabite, says, you know, they have this argument where they say, I don't want to disconnect, I don't want to leave. And so they, it boils down to this conversation where Ruth says this in verse 16 of chapter 1 in Ruth. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more. Also, if anything but death parts me from you, I'm pretty committed. So in the midst of a very common circumstance of someone dying and all this circumstance of people moving, we see someone with a very uncommon perspective. We see a pagan woman who chooses willfully to leave her opportunity to probably find another husband in her homeland, to leave her culture, her norms, her regular way of doing life, and to put herself in a completely different culture by following her mother-in-law, taking herself and chaining herself to the people of God. And so this incredible act is a physical embodiment of what God seeks for us to do in Psalm 1. And if you know the story, what happens is Ruth goes back to Israel. She meets this guy, Boaz. They fall in love. They play endless love. At the, you know, they play the song. You know, they ice skate together. It's amazing. And then you can read it. It's really good. And then, um, and then you know, they get married and they have a son. This pagan woman who was faithful to chain herself to the people of God and this Israelite man have a son and his name is Obed. Kind of a bummer, but 
That's his name. It's Obed. And so Obed has a son, and Obed's son is named Jesse. And Jesse has a son, and Jesse's son is named, anybody know? David. And David's lineage leads all the way to Jesus. And so we see this pagan woman gets in the lineage of Jesus because she detaches herself from the culture that's around her and attaches herself to the people of God. Psalm 1. See, Psalm 1 is this contrast between the wicked and the blessed. And the idea of blessed is something that goes deep in culture. So it starts with this idea of blessed. And if you follow blessed through the Bible, you'll find that blessed starts in the beginning with Adam and Eve. God blesses them and he says, uh, be fruitful and multiply. So he blesses them. We see the blessing then getting put on Noah after the flood. The flood is over and God blesses Noah. Then we see Abraham gets this blessing from God where God promises, I will bless you and I will bless your offspring. We see Mary receiving a blessing when she uh, finds out that she's with child. We see Jesus speaking in the be- through the be- Beatitudes, the basically the constitution of what it means to be blessed. And we see right here in Psalm 1, this idea of the favor of God resting on your life starts the song. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And so what he's saying is he's saying, blessed is the man who does not do these three particular things. And if you notice, there's kind of a progression there. Interestingly enough, right? Because usually sin does not happen in a day. Most of us don't go, you know what? I think I'd like to shoot heroin today. It's not usually the way it starts. Usually it starts with maybe just a little bit of an alcohol, you know, drink a little bit of alcohol, and boy, I like that feeling, or maybe a little prescription drug, and boy, that made me feel nice, and you know, then it goes on and on, and maybe I smoke a little weed, and maybe I on and on and on and on and on and on until I find myself. And so what we see here is this progression of sin. First, it's walking in the advice of those that think like this world system. Okay, that's where it starts. Just walking with them, just entertaining their ideas. Well, you should just leave her because she's been, you know, she hasn't been a good wife and you should just, well, yeah, you know, maybe that is a night. You know, maybe that is the right thing to do in this circumstance. Maybe I should leave my wife because, you know, the truth is she hasn't been faithful and honest to me and, and maybe I should, you know, and so you find this counsel in the wicked, right? And so the blessed one doesn't walk in that council, but we see here now it goes to the next step, or stand in the way of sinners. And so now we're kind of lingering. The Amplified Bible says, stand submissive and inactive. And so here I am just kind of lingering in the ideas of my culture. And then it gets even worse, the last one, or sit. That means to dwell, you know, to sit in the seat of scoffers. So now I've rested myself in this world view. See, the, ble- the blessed man disconnects from the world's values and ideals, and he orients his life around something totally different. What? Well, verse 2 tells us. But his delight, the delight of the blessed man, is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. His delight, his pleasure. Now, isn't this kind of a strange thing to say? Does this catch anyone else as strange? Like you delight in the law? Like, how many of us are just like, oh, I love those traffic lights. Awesome. 
Oh, speed limit. I love you, speed limit. I delight in you. I mean, that's just that, you know, when we think of law, when we think of delighting in the law, this is kind of a strange idea for us. And so this idea of law, it literally means in the Hebrew, delights in the instruction, delights in the direction or the teaching of a a particular individual. You see in your Bible, it's probably capitalized L-O-R-D like that. Every time you see that, you know that that's the name of God. Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, Jehovah. People have tried to say it a whole bunch of different ways. It is the name that's given to God when he encounters Moses with the burning bush. It is the name that says, I am that I am. It is Yahweh. It is this name of God. It says that the law or the instruction or the direction of this particular deity is my absolute delight. That's what he's saying here. My delight is in this. And it seems, if you study the Psalms, that they're pretty excited about this stuff. That again and again and again, the psalmist goes back to this idea of how awesome God's instruction is. I'll give you an example. In Psalm 19, if you want to flip there, you can. It says this about the law. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Look at the way it describes it. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. Enduring forever. The the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired they are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. This guy was pretty stoked about the law. He was thrilled with this idea of God's truth or God's instruction. He says it's better than gold. In other words, the most precious thing on earth is not as precious as this. He says it's sweeter than honey. In other words, the most delicious thing on the planet is not as delicious as this. See, the blessed person in Psalm 1 is convinced of something. And this is what I'm attacking this morning. The blessed person of Psalm 1 is not just mentally convinced, but at the core, deeply inwardly convinced that God the God who is the creator, the God who is all-powerful, actually speaks. He speaks through personal address by the Spirit. He speaks in the heart. He speaks to the audible ear on occasion. He speaks through human lips, but he also speaks in written form. That God speaks and people wrote it down and God accurately enabled them to do that so that you and I could know what he's said. So Moses, when he receives the law, describes it like this. He says the law was written with the finger of God. Isaiah, when he receives his prophecy, gets a word from the Lord and he's told, write this down. See, the blessed believe that just as God was in the middle of creation and just as God was right there on the cross and just as God was in the resurrection, God has also been working throughout history to weave together a collection of his accurate words. You have to understand how critical and how crucial this is. And so the Old Testament canon 
The scriptures that are put together that are now called the Old Testament were woven book by book together by the prophets. And supernaturally, the hand of God, the same God that said light, the same God that said mountains be formed, this same God strategically planned every word written down with specific intention so that you and I could know who he is. And so all of these New Testament words are are woven together. And then the scripture shows us that in 435 BC, with the words of Malachi, the canon shuts and not another word is added. And there's no prophets for years and years and years and years until Jesus walks on the scene. And Jesus, interestingly enough, affirms the Old Testament as God's word. He treats it as the very word spoken by Yahweh. He says that this word of the Old Testament is God's word and he consistently refers to it in that way. And so God breathes again on the apostles after Jesus rises from the dead. And these apostles are already told ahead of time, God's going to give them a supernatural memory to be able to write the words that he instructed them to write. And so the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament are compiled either through the apostles' authorship or through the apostles' endorsement. And now we have here 66 books divinely inspired by God. Now... You might be thinking, I don't know. You might be thinking, Justin, do you, you really believe that? I feel there's probably three types of people. One that would say, yes, I believe that and I live it. One that would say, that's kind of ridiculous. I don't really believe that. And another that would say, yes, I believe that, but you still act like you don't. See, this idea that God actually spoke, that we're just not reading words in a book printed, but it's actually the very voice of God changes everything. Why do I believe this? Well, I'll be honest, um, as I came to Christ, believing the Bible was one of the most difficult things for me to do personally. I wrestled with it. I read every historical book. I studied Josephus, the great Jewish historian. I went on and on and on looking at all the different historical accounts and how the New Testament was compiled and how the Old Testament was compiled and the council of this and the council of that. And I did all that. And if you want to do all that, by all means do it. Here's what I found. I found that despite 2,000 years of intense critique, when I honestly viewed this stuff, not through the lens of just some historian, but through the lens of my understanding around me and looking at the scripture itself, I found that it to, it to be incredibly historically accurate, internally consistent with prophecies that were fulfilled hundreds of years after they were given. It's been the most influential book on the planet, and I found it to be deeply sound. More than this, when I read the Bible, I was inwardly convinced by the Holy Spirit that it's God's words. And that inward conviction solidified what I had found in my study. I was convinced that God was a faithful God who had actually steered the process of the compilation of this book to such accuracy that I could trust it, that he wouldn't deceive his people for thousands of years. But as we launched into the church age, God gave us an accurate recording of who he is and what he said. I became convinced of it. And I think the thing that sealed the deal for me, and you'll understand where I'm going with this in a minute, is that I saw... Stay with me. I saw in the Bible a divine story of redemption woven through like a scarlet thread in a tapestry from cover to cover, from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation. I saw the finger of God guiding the stories written by various authors all throughout human history. And I saw that these words had the capacity to transform the human soul. 
I found them to be more effective than logic or psychology or reason or scientific methodology, though we're grateful for all those different forms of human knowledge. But I became convinced that these words were supreme above all other words. And these truths were supreme above all other truths. See, the blessed believe in Psalm 1, blessed is the man, his delight is in the instruction of the Lord. The blessed believe that the final standard of truth is God's truth, that the point of reference for nature, for reality, for humanity, for divinity is God's spoken word. And it becomes honey to the soul. It becomes more valuable than gold. Let me tell you today the secret of the blessed man. The blessed man recognized the poverty of the value system of the world that surrounds all of us and the wisdom of the world that distorts true wisdom recognized that poverty and instead orients his entire life around a foreign or an imported value system given to us by God. That's what the blessed man does. See, the blessed man, follow this, doesn't compare God's truth with his own perspective. The blessed man goes beyond that and embraces God's view as his own perspective. That's the secret of the blessed man. See, Ruth the Moabite was grafted into the lineage of Jesus because she embodied what God so desperately wants us to get from Psalm 1. She embodied this disconnecting from a pagan culture, this disconnecting from the numbness all around us and the value system. I'm not saying you can't go to the movies or wear a pair of, you know, certain type of shoes. What I'm saying is a disconnection from the value system of our society and instead fully embracing a foreign imported value system given to us by God. It was that disconnection that God saw and so pleased him that he brought Ruth right into the lineage of the Messiah. See, the blessed say your steadfast love is better than life. They say that because they experience that reality. It begins with delight. They delight in the law of the Lord. They delight. It becomes something that's wonderful to them. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Do you delight in the gospel? Do you delight in the good news of Jesus? You know, the other day, um, it was just, I think, two days ago, I was just reading Ephesians chapter 1. And as I'm reading Ephesians chapter 1, this overwhelming sense of joy started to fill my heart. And I said, you know, I don't need to read anything else. I'm just going to hang out here. Blessed be the God and Savior of our Lord Jesus, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. All of these realities stirring in my soul and my heart being overwhelmed with this sense of delight. God, it's true. God, it's true. God, it's true. They meditate on this. See, this word meditation gets often confused because of Eastern culture. So many Eastern religions would say that meditation is this practice of emptying the self, right? And disconnecting from the self emptying the mind of all things. Christian meditation is not so. Christian meditation, and we're going to talk about this in our Disciplines uh, series in uh, August, but Christian meditation is this process, not of emptying the self, not at all, but instead filling the self with the life, the light, and the truth that is beyond my truth, the reality that is cleaner, clearer, and more specific than the reality that I might feel or experience inwardly. What's the result? Check this out. He's like a tree 
planted by the streams of water. Check that out just for a second. He's like a tree planted. Look at that word planted. See, that speaks of intentionality. It's not a by accident tree. Intentional trees that are planted have caretakers that take care of them. I remember back at my house in North Haven as a kid, we planted this tree, and I don't know anything about trees, so I can't remember what it was, but it had red leaves on it. And we had this red leaf tree, and we tried everything to get that stinking tree to stay alive. And for some reason, that tree was just always seemed to be, you know, dying. And so we'd water it, and we'd try to care for it, and we'd fertilize it. We took so much care of that tree because we purchased the tree, and we planted it right in our front yard with a desire for it to grow. I think it's dead today. I don't know. I don't live there anymore. But it didn't work out so well. But what I did realize is that a planted tree is taken care of. A planted tree gets attention from its owner. He's like a tree planted where? By streams of water. How many streams? Well, more than one. Well, why is there more than one? Because it's a perpetual supply. Perpetual supply. He's talking about a person who is guided by God. A person who is consistently, intentionally supplied for. A perpetual supply. And then look at the rest of the promise. It yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And in all that he does. Look at those words. He prospers. He prospers. See, in this psalm, in this song written by the psalmist, we see the secret of a blessed life. When I disconnect, follow me, when I disconnect from the already pre-programmed ideologies of my culture, when I disconnect from the value system that's impressed upon me, the value system of what love is, the value system of what pleasure should be like, the value system of what justice is, when I disconnect from my personal desires and instead I chain myself to the great truth of God, when I do that, by faith in Christ, I begin to experience this consistent watering, this consistent blessing, this consistent favor from God. My leaf doesn't wither and Everything that I do begins to prosper. So then who are the wicked? I don't know about you. I hear the word wicked. What do you think of? I think of uh, a Broadway musical. I think of a lady with green face and monkeys that fly. That's what I think of when I hear the word wicked. I think, okay, yeah, wicked, great. So I'm definitely not green and I don't have wings and I'm not a monkey. So that counts me out. Good, not wicked. What's the next thing? You know, that's what I think. But the New King James Version uses the word ungodly. The ungodly are not so. And so nobody likes to be wicked. I mean, none of us would go, yeah, I'm the wicked one, you know. But it's interesting to me when you study Psalm 1 who the wicked actually are. I want to propose to you this morning that the wicked in Psalm 1 are not exclusively terrible people who commit crimes, okay? Just terrible people who commit crimes would be included in the wicked, but that's not who the wicked is in its entirety. It would seem to me that the wicked, according to Psalm 1, are those who walk by or linger in the attitudes of the world that come so naturally to all of us. That's who the wicked is. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers, had some interesting things to say about 
Psalm 1, look what he said. He said, the ungodly man or the wicked man is the one who does not have an eye to God in his daily business, who lives in his world as if there is no God. While he attends to all the outward ceremonies of religion, he never goes to their core, never enters into their secret heart in their deep mysteries. He sees the sacraments and he sees not God therein. He hears the preaching and he comes up to the house of prayer into the midst of the great congregation. He bows his head, but there is no present deity to him there is no manifest god there is no hearing of his voice there is no bowing before his throne you why have you been the last six days about your business occupying all your time and quite right it is to be diligent in business but how many of you have forgotten god all the while See, the wicked person is the one who just embraces the realities of this life without reprogramming your thinking about the next life. And you know, the thing that drives me nuts and the thing that drove me to this psalm as I was praying and studying and asking the Lord which direction we should go is that, friends, too often in our community and in church in general, I don't see a people who actually act like this is God's word. And we say, oh yeah, we believe the word. Yeah, it's awesome we believe the word. But when's the last time you've memorized anything from the word? When's the last time you've intentionally taken on a problem based upon the truths of the word rather than just the truths of what you think is functional? When's the last time you found seven or eight or nine or 10 or 15 scriptures that dealt with your particular soul issue and began to meditate on those until that reality became brighter and cleaner and clearer and stronger than the reality you were feeling before? Nobody amen me on that. Nobody said woo-woo on that one. See, look at the result of the wicked. It says the wicked are not so. In other words, they are not going to be like a, a tree. They're not going to be planted by a stream. They're not going to yield fruit in their season. Their leaf is going to wither, and what they do will not always prosper. The wicked are not so, but they're like chaff the wind drives away. Now, I'm not a farmer, and I don't know much about chaff, but I did some studying, and most of us know that the chaff is this protective covering that, that grows with the grain. And when the grain is mature, they peel the chaff away and it blows away in the wind. And so it's describing this individual who's going to hang out with the grain but isn't actually the grain. And one day the two will be separated and reality will be seen. The wicked are like chaff. Look what happens to the way of the wicked. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but check this out, but the way of the wicked will perish. Isn't it interesting that it doesn't just say that the wicked will perish. It says that their way will perish. That that whole life system, that whole way of doing life is not gonna last. This is the same thing it says in 1 John, where he says, do not love the world or the things of the world. For anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and the lusts of it. But the one who does the will of the Father abides forever. Again, in that psalm, I mean, again, in that, those words from John, he's contrasting these two realities. One will hold themselves to a reality that's bigger than this life. The other will adopt the reality that's pressed upon them and comes so naturally to their mind, their own Moabite way of thinking. One is going to say, you know what? I'm chaining myself to the people of God and to the realities of God, and those come to the lineage of Jesus. But then others will say, you know what? This is what comes naturally. I should probably just stay on this path, and you never get a Adopted into the family of Jesus. 
So what holds greater weight in your life? God's word or your own perception? Do you regularly transform your thinking by meditating on his word day and night? Is it like honey for your soul? Is it more precious to you than gold? Is that your reality? You know, a couple pulse checks help you see your own heart. How do you think about money? How do you think about money? That's always one that is a telltale sign of where your soul is with God. Don't think you can fool him, friend. If you cling to money like it's yours, if you act like it's your provision and substance, you have adopted the ideologies of this world because it is worshipped above all else in our culture. Do you forgive others when they fail you or when they sin against you or do you wrestle to do it? Do you forgive others quickly and readily? Because here's what I know, that the one that's experienced genuine forgiveness forgives quickly. Not because they deserve it, not because they earned it, but because you've been forgiven. Do you live, here's a good one, do you live with assurance of God's love for you? Do you? Or do you constantly question it, constantly feel like he doesn't love you, constantly feel like he doesn't care for you? Friend, what I'm telling you is if you live without an assurance of God's love for you, you're elevating your emotional experience above what he's already said. Because the scripture says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. And so if the scripture says nothing can separate me, but I feel separated, well then which reality wins in my experience? How do you live? Do you share your faith with people at work or people at school or neighbors? Or do you find that to be some distant obligation that you've often forgotten? Because here's what I know. That an individual who does not share his faith has not actually adopted the ideologies of the kingdom. Has not taken this word and applied it to that area of their life. Because Jesus said, go and make disciples. Not stay and hang out with friends. Do you constantly worry? Do you constantly worry about things? Do you believe, look at me just for a second, that you can be free from the biggest sin struggle in your life? Because the scripture says that you can. But some of us have adopted an ideology that says we can't. And what you're doing is you're deciding to allow your experience to be bigger than his word. And you don't begin to experience the blessing until you allow his reality to supersede your own. Here's what I want to see for us as a people. I want to see us as a people constantly meditating on God's view of reality, constantly reprogramming our thoughts based upon what God says is true rather than what we say is true. Being able to say, you know what, this world system that I've been following, this cultural world system that I've been adopted about money, about sex, about pleasure, about joy, about happiness, all the different aspects, all the different things that filter into every TV commercial and every, you know, uh, different part of culture that's constantly trying to be pounded on me. I see it and I'm aware that it's worthless before God and instead I adopt a different way of thinking, a different way of practicing, a different way of doing life based upon his truth because I believe that his word was actually written down and I can rely on it. I just want to invite you today. I don't know where you're at, 
But I want to invite you today, whether you've been a Christian for 35 years or 40 years or 50 years or whether you come to Christ today, I want to invite you today to really believe this. See, in the beginning of this book, there's a man. Kind of like Ruth, the Moabite. He sees the worthlessness of the world around him and he gets a word from God. And God tells him to leave his home and go somewhere else because God will bless him if he does. And the man believes God's word above his circumstance. That man, Abraham, has a miracle son named Isaac. And he passes the blessing on to Isaac. And Isaac passes the blessing on to Jacob. And Jacob passes the blessing on to his sons. And the people of God pass the blessing from person to person to person. All along, God's words being written down in the process so that each can learn what the last has learned. And then God's word becomes a man. The blessing. See, Psalm 1 is Jesus. Like a tree planted by the streams. Psalm 1 is the blessed man, the incarnate blessing. Jesus, he's our blessing. You notice that Psalm 1 talks about a tree, right? It's not the first time the Bible talks about a tree. In fact, the Bible starts with a story about a tree. And if you don't know the story, it starts with a story about a tree called the tree of life. And this tree of life is a picture, somehow we don't know all the specifics, of God's eternal life. And Adam and Eve disobey and rebel against God and they're no longer given access to this tree of life, this leaf that doesn't wither. And so the tree of life, this living tree that would provide eternal substance, we're disconnected from it. And yet the blessing, Jesus, comes And the scripture says in multiple places that he takes the tree upon his back and he's nailed to the tree, the curse. See, the blessing becomes a curse and gets nailed to the tree. And the book ends with a tree. Do you know that? like this in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river. What's it sound like? Of the water of life, bright and crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Friend, here's what I'm getting at. This story is so intricately and perfectly woven together that you and I can rest in the confidence that we can trust his view of reality above our own sin-distorted view. Would you stand your feet with me today? Scripture says that um, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And Jesus says that he's the vine and that we can be the branches grafted into him. Does your perspective need to be healed today? Does your perspective need to be healed? Is there an area of your perspective that you have not adopted God's reality above your own? 
Maybe I mentioned one of them. Maybe God's been convicting you ever since I said that one little sentence. Maybe when I said that one little sentence, it didn't even sound like Justin. It sounded like God. And I'm not saying that I'm God. Don't even come close to that. But what I'm saying is that somehow God takes a word and when you hear it, it speaks to this. Is that where you're at right now? Is there something inside of your soul that's stirring? Is there a word from God that just pulled on you while we were talking, while we were reflecting on this psalm? Is there something that God was pricking in your heart? Why don't we pray? Holy Spirit, we welcome you right now into this moment. God, I know that as a people, you want to see us advance here. You want to see us grow to become more like you, to think like you think. God, would you speak to each of us? God, I know that there's a number of us right now that you're already convicting. Holy Spirit, I want to welcome you right now to continue in that area of conviction. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would supernaturally in the only way that you can alive right now, speak to every person about the way that we've interacted with your living word. Father, we confess that way too often we're adopting the reality that comes so naturally, the reality of Moab, rather than disconnecting and adopting the reality of Israel. God, I pray that right now you would speak to us about any area of our life where we've become numb Come, Holy Spirit. If the Lord's putting his finger on something in your heart, if there's something stirring in your heart, you say, you know, I know that God's convicting me about this or about that. I can sense that God's really pressing in this area. I just want you to stick up your hand for a second. Just stick up your hand and say, yeah, he's really convicting me about this or that. You can put it right back down after you stick it up. Just say, yeah, that's me. God's speaking to me about something right now. Thank you, God. You can put it back down. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. God, right now, in the name of Jesus, we turn these areas over to you. Right now, in the name of Jesus, we decide, Jesus, that there's no place we would rather be than in your love. Jesus, we pray right now that you forgive us. God, let's just tell him personally, Father, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord, for this way of thinking. God, I ask in Jesus' name that you would change my way of thinking right now. I surrender this old way of thinking to you right now in Jesus' name. In your own words, let's just talk to God for a moment right now. In your own words, just make it real between you and him. Tell him right now. We hope you've been challenged and encouraged by this City Church podcast. Visit City Church at www.ourcitychurch.org.